Bam 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 to go help yourself. <laughs> I didn't have anything left. Came out strong, fizzled out Sorry like a firework. So <laughs> Everyone, this is Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I am staring at the wonderful, beautiful, amazing Link Linkalisi. Yeah, and I am staring at the wonderful, beautiful, amazing Stinny Misty. <laughs> Otherwise known as Misty and Lisa. You got it. It's been a long day. You better it's believe been, it. You better believe it's it. It's been a long week. Yes. And this is the podcast where we read and review and share with you the highlights and lowlights mm -hmm. of a popular self-help book each week. Yes. We tell you what we feel about it, yeah. what we thought its strengths were, yeah. its weaknesses. Yeah. Lisa finds a way to hate it. Yep. I find a way to love it. True. Right? It's all happening. Um, and the point is, we're reading these books so that you don't have to. There's so much literature out there, especially in the self-help world. Oh, my God. And we all want to know the good nuggets, right? I mean, most of us do. Most of us do, except for the curmudgeons, which I'm here for you. Thank I get you. it. Thank I get you. it. But the point is, we're reading the book so that you don't have to. You can keep going about your busy lives yeah. while still getting that perspective-altering self-help wisdom that everyone has been like, it's time. Yeah. Or on the off chance that you hear what we're what we're spewing and you're like, that sounds magical, you can go buy the book because there's no way we can cover everything. And some of these books, and many of them are quite magical, mm -hmm. some of these books just barely, our reviews barely scratch the surface because they're so rife with research and gorgeousness, like the self-driven child, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like anything Brene Brown, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so do yourselves a favor. And I'm say like this book today. Like this book today. Lisa, mm -hmm. what are you presenting to us today? Oh, I am pleased, most pleased. You to seem pleased. present to you the upside of your dark side. Why being your whole self, not just your, quote, good self, drives success and fulfillment. I already love it. Mm -hmm. By Todd Cashton and Robert Biswas-Diener. Both are doctors. Todd Cashton is a PhD and Robert uh, is a, do a doctor of philosophy. Big wash wiener. Got it. Well, I did go to high school with him, so. Oh, that's so. <laughs> no. Nope, that's it. That's what you it is. You went to high school with Robert Biswas Diener. I did, Rob, uh, Robert Diener, uh, uh, and I went to the same high school. I believe he was a year or two older, um, but he inscribed this book for me when it came out. Oh, so, oh my God. Misty, will you read? Oh, I would love to. This looks like hard. Um, okay. I'm going to do my best with this handwriting. Rob, Lisa, the core message of this book is the idea that flexibility is the way to the best life possible. Accepting and using all your feelings <laughs> and perceptions for each unique moment. If that's what being whole is, it sounds an awful lot like improv. Good news for you. With fondness and admiration, Robert Big Wasweiner. Thank you. And then at the very top, this one made me laugh. 
Um, note to booksellers, Lisa Linky, the bearer of this book, is not authorized to resell this volume. <laughs> Refuse to accept it. That's so funny. Isn't that great? Who wrote that? Because that handwriting's great. <laughs> the same guy. Oh, great. Thanks, uh-huh. Rob. Um, yeah, so This I is was, so exciting that you know this author. I know him. And um, just as a caveat, I sent him a couple follow-up questions because this was uh, pr- uh, produced, published in 2014. Oh and my so it's been God, five you years. got to ask the author follow-up? I mean, that has only I haven't happened. Heard, I, heard, I haven't heard back from him yet. But Rob? When, but when he, Rob? <laughs> he could be We've got a vacation. podcast, Rob. We're on a schedule. <laughs> he could, no, this he, is incredible, though, yeah. because how often we've only had access to one other author. I know. So Miss Gemma Hartley. I asked him a couple follow-up questions in light of how kind of our culture and environment has changed over the past five years. And so um, asked him how, uh, of course, you know, my questions were about inclusivity. Yeah. And how his findings uh, address that. So Yes. And are you feeling any sort of special pressure because you know this author in presenting this book? No. Predominantly because this book is already in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. It's science-backed. Damn. It's so research-based. And it's presenting this idea that are this kind of new age, good vibes only, you know, secret. Think positive think at positive all costs. At all costs is not, it's it's actually, there's it's research bullshit. proving that it's, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. So, you know, that made me happy. Yeah, my own research in my own life can yes. tell you that it doesn't work. Um, and so it kind of gives this, you know that I love to listen to my emotions and I feel like they really provide information for me. Yes. I don't find any emotion bad, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, uh, and I find it just as information. And so they really validated that for me in this book. Great. Great. So for me, this will, you know, okay. Great. Um, let me tell you a little bit about it. It was published in 2014. It's 304 pages. The Kindle is $12.99. The hardcover is $25.95. But because it's older, you could find it um, cheaper. Um, if you try to find a new copy, it's definitely going to be more expensive. The paperback is $12.88. And Audible is $20.99, narrated by Jeff Cummings. Okay. I don't know about Overdrive, but check it out. Great. From Wiki, Todd B. Cashton is a scientist, public speaker, and professor of psychology at George Mason University. He is director of the Wellbeing Laboratory at George Mason George Mason University. George Mason University. His research explores why people suffer with an emphasis on the transition from normal to pathological anxiety. Other research explores the nature of well-being with an emphasis on the critical functions of curiosity, meaning and purpose in life, and psychological flexibility to human performance. From his website, since receiving a Ph.D. in clinical psychology in 2004, he published over 185 peer-reviewed journal articles on how to foster and sustain happiness and meaning in life, strength, use and development, stress and anxiety, mindfulness, gratitude, social relationships, and self-regulation. Holy cow, he would love this podcast. (laughs) Yes, these contributions have been recognized by the American Psychological Association's Distinguished Scientific Award for Early Career Contribution to Psychology in 2013, Distinguished Research Fellow Award from the International Society for the Quality of Life in 2012, and he is a scientific advisor for Time, Inc., National Geographic, and Merck. So he's like super unqualified he's to talk stupid. about any of this. He's real stupid. Real dumb. From um from Wiki, uh, Robert Biswas-Diener is a positive psychologist, author, and instructor at Portland State University. His mother is Carol Diener and his father is Ed Diener, both psychologists. His research focuses on income and happiness, culture and happiness, and positive psychology. His research has led him to areas such as India, Greenland, 
Israel, Kenya, and Spain. And he has been called the Indiana Jones of positive psychology. What? (laughs) And what is positive psychology? They'll talk about it. He obtained his PhD in 2009 on material wealth and subjective well-being from the University of Tromso, which I think is in... Norway. Everyone knows that, Lisa. Thank you. Um, He's interested in looking into the difference between a procrastinator and what he calls an incubator. So we've talked a little bit about Mm -hmm. that. He's the author of books and articles and sits on the editorial boards of the Journal of Happiness Studies and Journal of Positive Psychology. He also co-founded the Strengths Project, a charity whose mission is to help quote, underprivileged individuals and groups realize their strengths to enhance quality of life and build on their life circumstances. Wow. So those are the two authors. This book was listed in New York Magazine's Best Psychology Books from 2014. It's also been referenced on CNN, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Forbes, Fast Company, Psychology Today, and Oprah Magazine. Mm. Yeah, so it's just a little indie. (laughs) It's just a little Mm -hmm. indie. It's a little self-published. There are seven chapters. Chapter one, The False Nose of Happiness. Mm. Chapter two, The Rise of the Comfortable Class. Chapter three, What's So Good About Feeling Bad? (laughs) Chapter four, How Positive Emotion Can Lead to Your Downfall. Chapter five, Beyond the Obsession with Mindfulness. Chapter six, The Teddy Effect. Chapter seven, The Whole Enchilada. So just a couple notes. This is actually categorized in the business section on Amazon because really? it was written with some specific takeaways for work in mind on how to manage people and how to like huh. have difficult conversations. I think that was probably a choice on the publisher's part right? on how to um, make this have a wider audience. Or maybe like appeal to males. Possibly. Right? Because we've talked about how so much self-help is geared towards women. So much of it is marketed that way. I think one of my questions was about that. Yeah, but when you make something like that, seven habits of highly effective people seem more business-minded. It's like, oh, okay, I can approach this now. But I think it works as a self-help book, much like the charisma myth, and it Mm. has a lot of research to back up their claims. Each chapter ends with key takeaways. Love that. And tons of research. Love. Um, There's notes on each study and a huge index at the end. Great. Um, so in the introduction, which is before all the chapters, they address the concept of distress, distress tolerance, distress okay. tolerance, which okay. is the same thing that trainees for elite special forces training endure. So like basically they start a run with their huge pack on and they don't know how long it'll be. Oh, my God. And so some people start off, like, trying to win. Some people start off at a slow pace. Some people start off individually. Some people start off trying to, like, you know, garner camaraderie Camaraderie. and here's what they say not surprisingly the leading predictor of success in elite military training programs is the same quality that distinguishes those best equipped to resolve marital conflict to achieve favorable deal terms and business negotiations and to bestow the gifts of good parenting on their children colon the ability to tolerate psychological discomfort Oh, I know, right? My God. They really come out the gate just... They do. Gunning. And so I'm going to read this section to you. This is what psychologists refer to as distress tolerance, a quality found in people who can handle the emotional equivalent of camping, no shampoo, flush toilets, or walls to keep out creepy crawlers, (laughs) who don't shy away from anger, guilt, or boredom just because they feel bad. 
Instead, they withstand the discomfort of those feelings and, when appropriate, even draw from this darker palette of emotions. You might be asking, why would I want to do that? Pain hurts. I'd rather be happy. If this question occurs to you, we're nodding our heads in full agreement. Mm. We want you to be happy, too. Distress tolerance is important not just because it makes you a better camper or soldier, but also because it allows you to become stronger, wiser, uh, mentally agile, and, most important, happier in a more resilient and therefore durable way. After more than a decade of working with patients, clients, students, small companies, and organizations as large as the military and the Fortune 100, we, the authors, are putting forward a new way to pursue what is desirable in life. It's not happiness exactly, although it does have the side effect of making us happier. We call this state wholeness. Huh. So it reminded me of when I read Aristotle's Way mm-hmm. and how people have been like in two camps um, since then, philosophers talking about happiness, whether it's um, the quality or emotion of feeling happy or mm-hmm. like, you know, this idea of like a, a all of the things that happen when you are happy in your wholeness life, right? right? right. Um, so... They say, and they state in this introduction, we believe and new research supports the idea that every emotion is useful, even the ones we think of as negative, including the painful ones. Anger is a good example. Research shows that only rarely does anger turn into the kind of overwhelming rage that leads to violence. Mm. Instead, it tends to bubble up when you perceive an encroachment on your rights as a person. Anger stirs you to defend yourself and those you care about and to maintain healthy boundaries. Similarly, embarrassment is sometimes an early warning sign of humiliation. More often, it's a signal that we've made a small mistake and that a small correction is required. Even guilt is not as awful as you might guess. It's a signal that you're violating your own moral code and therefore need to adjust either your actions or your code. All psychological states have some adaptive advantage. Rather than steering you toward a single feeling state, then, we urge you to consider the usefulness of many, especially the ones we turn away from, and develop the ability to navigate every one. For some people, seeing the bright side of life is an uphill battle. For others, feeling sad is an unusual event. We don't suggest an extra helping of happiness or a dash of negativity. We suggest both. It is by appropriately flipping back and forth between these two states that you can achieve a balanced, stabilizing sense of wholeness. Simply put, people who are able to use the whole range of their natural psychological gifts, those folks who are comfortable with being both positive and negative and can therefore draw from the full range of human emotions, are the healthiest and often most successful. Tell me what you're thinking. Why has it taken... uh, First of all, I just want to say thank you. Mm -hmm. And why has it taken... You know, 30 books or however many we've read of the most popular self-help books out there for someone to be like, your negative emotions are so fucking useful. Like when you said that about anger being a signal that we need to set healthy boundaries or it lets us Someone's encroaching on our boundaries. Someone's encroaching. Like that, that immediately makes me grateful for my anger. And we all know that it's hard to stay in a horrible mental place when you're feeling gratitude, right? So, like, I'm immediately – that just allows so much self-compassion to come in. Yeah. This this kind of wording and research sounds like it makes so much space for self-compassion. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Brene Brown's whole book is on shame, right? Which most people want to avoid. Yeah, daring greatly. Yeah, and she talks about it through living a whole – isn't it whole wholeness or what was her word? I think so. I can't remember. 
Yeah, but it, the same sense, right? That um, you have this uh, a, a much more a much better quality of life if you can be vulnerable. Yes, wholehearted. That's what whole she called it. Wholeheartedness. Right. Right. Yeah. So, like, this is. I'm just astounded that this is the first book out of more than 20, 25, 30 books that has even addressed this. Well, it's Except not, for Brene. And it's in the business section. It's not in and self-help. It's in the, yes. And it's not one of the most popular ones, which was Girl, Wash Your Face and um, You Are a Badass and The Secret, oh God, right? Which the, are kind of promoting... It's only positive thinking. And if bad things are coming to you, it's because you're thinking bad thoughts. And this is like, yeah. no, your bad thoughts are super helpful. I'm, yeah. a, I'm on board. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, the only challenge, uh, first of all, I, after I read that, I, I wrote, now you know this is my fucking jam. That is your um, jam. This is the most Lisa book we've read so far. I am far. bathed in strawberry jam right now. Um, <laughs> I do I do take issue with them calling them negative emotions just because I don't like to see any emotion as negative, but I understand why they did it because I think a lot of people view them as negative emotions. Yeah, it's like they're playing to their audience, right? I think so, too, to just kind of get people But also, they did say they're all useful. Yes. Right? Right. So I think they're just, and I think that's just kind of a colloquialism they use in the book to get you to understand which side they're talking about. Right, 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 right. right. Um, Happy versus sad. Right, right. Right. Um, So then they say that over the past 15 years, and remember this was written in 2014, that positive psychology has transformed from a reminder that positive experiences are important, which is what positive psychology is, to a kind of smiling fascism. Holy shit. Yeah. I really— But he is—but Robert is a positive psychologist. Yeah. So what they're saying is that— it's really changed, yeah. right? This the the whole practice of positive psychology. Do you think all these people got in there and were like, "We are going to study positive psychology and be so positive, and it's going to be amazing"? And then they were all miserable. Well, it's kind of interesting. I I want to read this this thing to you, which is so great. Um, so they, they kind of talk about who they are and how they got together. Mm-hmm. It says, "So who are we, the authors in whom you have chosen to invest your time and entrust your confidence?" Oh my God! Thank you for asking that. <laughs> Both of us entered the field of positive psychology more than a decade ago when this new scientific movement was just finding its legs. Mm. We were drawn to the promise of a fresh discipline with a new way of tackling old issues. In a discipline dominated by anxiety and depression research, we found the focus of positive psychology refreshing. So instead, so positive psychology is focusing on the positive side quote Mm -hmm. versus like, let's just research the anxiety and depression. Got it. Mm -hmm. Oh, got it. Okay. So they say, we'll give you just a single example sex. In the years since Sigmund Freud made it the main event, human sexuality has been a bit sidelined from psychology. Scientists, like many people, can be prudes. Given the amount of time we think about sex, crave sex, have sex, or more easily purchase Fifty Shades of Grey novels, thank you. you'd think that human sexuality would be the most researched topic in history. We should know more about sex than we do about the speed of light or genetic engineering. But when we've recently entered the keyword term sex and depression into the leading professional psychological database, we found just over 2,000 hits for sex and 200,000 hits for depression. Wow. He says, now that's depressing. Yes, <laughs> super depressing. So it says the two of us went about investigating whether sex can serve as a free, fun form of therapy for anxiety. We were particularly interested in socially anxious folks who avoid making social connections for fear of rejection. In our study, we had more than 100 participants report on hundreds of sexual episodes across a two-week period. I think that means in mass, not that each There's, person was having yeah, hundreds. Yeah, I was going to say, damn. I was like, damn, oh. introverts. <laughs> okay. Damn. 
We had people rate the degree to which they felt intimacy, experienced pleasure, and reached an orgasmic climax during sexual episodes. It turns out that people who suffer with social anxiety problems benefit from sexual contact even as much as 24 hours after an anxiety attack. Sex that left people feeling intimately tied to another person lowered anxiety the following day by 10%. Even better, hot sex, escapades that were downright lusty, (laughs) lowered anxiety by 25%. I mean, that's better than Zoloft. No, I don't know. I don't know. So they said, we concluded that there is a place, even a curative place, for talking about positive experiences in conjunction with so-called negative experiences like anxiety and depression. But even as we tilled the fields of positive psychology, both of us were also increasingly put off by the, quote, gung-ho happyology we often witnessed. Mm -hmm. And that's when they said it turned into this smiling fact. Fascism. Gung-ho happyology. Mm-hmm. Thank so you. So they want to remind us that in business, Jack Welch, who ran um, GE mm-hmm. and, and like was a huge name in business. So about 35 years ago, he put people in uncomfortable, demanding, challenging situations at GE. And he introduced the world to, quote, stretch goals, which accelerated personal growth and ultimately performance. Now, the authors say that the current fad, the current fad, as opposed to that, is that good mood equals business success. Right, like happy cows make more milk. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh huh. Well, research research findings show that the happiest people make less money and are less conscientious of their work habits because they're so happy. Well, they don't know exactly why, but stretch goals lead to better performance overall. What's a stretch goal? Like with Jack Welch, so you put people in uncomfortable positions, you ask them to perform higher than they're oh, currently capable. Oh, yeah, capable. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so they're striving harder. They're paying more attention maybe. Yeah, right? they're not 100% sure of the link, but this idea that like good mood equals good business is not 100% accurate. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's revelatory. Isn't it interesting? Because you think about everywhere in Silicon Valley. It's yes. like ping pong tables and video machine. you know, and it's like, well... Paint the walls gray and put on scary movie soundtracks and let's see what happens. So they have counterintuitive studies showing that happiness often backfires and that, quote, bad states are sometimes good. And I, this resonated with me because when people try to force me to be happy, it makes me so mad. So angry. Yeah, it really does. No, you go think positive, Rachel Hollis. Thank you. Um, Wholeness is revered in many cultures and they propose that this is an anti-happiness approach to joy. Right. So instead of a happiness approach to joy, yep. a wholeness approach to joy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, recent studies show that there is no direct path to happiness. Thank so you. I just want to point out that from so many thousands of years ago when Aristotle was writing about happiness yes. and potentialism and all this stuff, mm-hmm. right, that we're still trying to figure out how to be happy. Yeah, and we've been thinking about this for millennia, and that it's in the it's in the doctrine and, and the founding documents of our country, life, right. liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That we have always been thinking about this. Yes, and that we find that it's integral to being a human being. Yes, we do, and and that if anybody is peddling you, this is the only way to do it. Run. Rhonda Byrne and the Secret. Um, oh, I said run and you said Rhonda Byrne. I yeah, was like, yes. That's right. They can go fuck themselves yeah, because there's not no right. direct route to happiness. That's right. So we're going to go to chapter one, The False Nose of Happiness. Great. And that statement comes from this guy, and he had a fake nose. In 16th <laughs> century Denmark, Tycho Brahe, 
T Y C H O B R A H E. Sure. Yeah. Was renowned, was as renowned for his flamboyant lifestyle as he was for a scientific genius. His nose was cut off in a duel and he replaced it with a metal one. And he oh attended my God, parties. What a badass. He attended parties with his pet moose who I drank bet. copious amounts of alcohol. But I'm his, sorry. Uh-huh. The moose drank copious amounts That's of alcohol? That's right. But his um, lasting claim to fame is his contribution to astronomy. Instead of accepting ancient philosophical or religious notions about the nature of the heavens, he carefully observed and charted all the stars he could see in the night skies. His notes led to a number of astounding discoveries, including the birth and death of stars, a phenomenon that contradicted ancient notions that all things celestial were fixed. False nose and inebriated moose aside, his work earned him a place in history as the father of modern astronomy, who formed the foundation on which his assistant, Johannes Kepler, and all modern astronomers would build their science. I mean, he sounds like a cocky dude, but like he can back it up. Right? It's kind of like, what's that movie with uh, Mozart and Salieri? Oh, Amadeus? Yes. Yes. Yeah, where it's like Mozart's such a party boy, but like also he's Mozart. Right? It says, today psychology is having a brahe moment. Until this point, people have been pretty good about creating intuitive approaches to improving the quality of life. You've probably come across some of these theories, such as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. the idea that people have to satisfy basic requirements like food and safety before they can address their need for self-esteem and fulfillment. Mm -hmm. There's also no shortage of common sense advice on how to become happier. Be kind, count your blessings, commute less, spend more time with friends and family, et cetera, et cetera. Great suggestions, but is there reason to believe that these chestnuts are either universally applicable or always true? Hmm. Fortunately, we are living in a remarkable time in psychology thanks to the introduction of a sophisticated neuroscience, advanced statistics, handheld computers that allow for better sampling of daily experiences, and other methodological and methodological. She's got it. She's got it, everybody. technical breakthroughs. This is our Brahe moment when the fundamental understanding of quality of life changes. In the field of psychology in general and on the subject of happiness specifically, these new tools have yielded two transformative findings. First, we tend to go about the business of happiness all wrong. And second, we can do something to fix this. Oh, my God. Tell me everything. I know, right? Todd, Rob, tell me. (laughs) Right? Dad and Rob. So um, this paradox of happiness being shown to help uh, of health has lots of benefits. So like health, uh, happiness makes you healthier, right? Like happier people don't get colds as much and um, all this stuff. They're like, well, if this is true, then why why isn't it widespread? Like, why aren't people just forcing themselves to be happy everywhere? Yeah, right. If that's if the if the if the body is healthier when it's happy, why aren't people? Why isn't the body just happy? Yeah, why isn't that a natural state? Right. Why do we have more? And why do we have more depression, and anxiety now than we ever have? Yes, when we have more luxuries. I mean, maybe more stress, but different stress. We're not like, yeah, we got to gather nuts and berries, or we're not going to eat. Yeah. So they say that humans are not very good at making choices that lead to our happiness. Okay. We make emotional time travel errors. We overestimate how happy something will make us if it happens, like if our home team wins. Mm. And we underestimate how hard something will be, like moving to L.A. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Um, There's a great study about unplanned pregnancy on page five, and I want to read it. Oh, my God. It's it's quite brilliant. So um, here we go. Take, for example, the study in which Mellers and her colleagues, I don't know who that are, they investigated women who took a pregnancy test at Planned Parenthood. It's important to note that none of the women in this study were trying to get pregnant. Okay. Roughly speaking, the women fell into two groups, those who dreaded having a baby and hoped for a negative result, and those who hoped the pregnancy test turned out positive. Mm. 
The researchers asked women to make predictions about how happy they would be if their hoped-for outcome came to pass. Mm. Women who were hoping for a negative result expected to feel a sense of elation if they ended up with an empty womb. Women who wanted to be pregnant also expected to feel joyful if they got the positive result they were hoping for. After the test was over, the researchers found, to their surprise, neither agony nor ecstasy. For any of them? In fact, they found nothing more than a tiny blip in the women's emotional equilibrium. Women who wanted a baby were not crestfallen when told it didn't work out. Instead, they were mildly disappointed and then bounced back to their regular mood. We might expect different results if these women had been unsuccessfully trying for months or years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As for women who didn't want a baby but ended up with an unplanned living embryo inside of them, their anticipated dread never materialized. Instead, they had a softer reaction and a small minority found an unexpected burst of pleasure. It turns out that one reason we wrongly predict what will make us happy in the future is that we overlook our capacity to tolerate and even adapt to discomfort. Oh, Sure, that new job is intimidating the first week, but before long, you're cruising along as if you'd worked there for years. Yeah. The big reason you should care about emotional time travel errors is that nearly every decision you make now is based on an assumption of how you expect to feel in the future. Mm. So you purchase a dream suburban house with five bedrooms and a sprawling lawn. Because you're going to feel so great in Mm -hmm. it. But you mentally minimize the 35 minutes you've added on to driving into work. Oh, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So it turns out we all... That big old mortgage payment. Yes. It turns out we all tend to exaggerate how positively we'll feel in response to positive events and all underestimate our our capacity to tolerate distress. I wonder if that's cultural or if that's I think it's human. Yeah. So we... We overestimate how happy something will make us, uh-huh. and we underestimate yeah. our ability to tolerate. Jeez. So it's really interesting. Um, <sighs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> we, we often guess wrong. past decisions are flying through my brain. One study showed that people in the pursuit of happiness actually felt lonelier. Yeah, that feels right. Yeah. It feels true for me as well. They say, putting it succinctly— We humans are horrible at guessing how happy we will feel in the future, and yet we base important life decisions on these flawed predictions. We purchase TVs, plan retirement, and say yes to dinner dates, all because of an imperfect guess about how happy they will make us. No wonder we fare poorly in the happiness department and business is booming for happiness authors, coaches, and consultants. Yeah, it is. The universal heavy lifting approach to happiness, when someone follows a prescribed set of common sense steps that are held out as helpful for everyone, doesn't work. You know, that made me so fucking happy. You know it did. And I just want to scream like, get that money, Jensen Cheryl. Okay? Because I hate when somebody says, this made me happy and it will make you happy too. Oh, uh, yeah. You are a badass. Hear how I was a badass and, and I made all this an money. Audi. And Ooh. so, listen, did you buy her book proposal thing? No. Okay. <laughs> it's a bit like Brahe's false nose, a reasonably close approximation, but it won't really help you smell any better. Thank you. So what what we, <laughs> all of us, need with regard to happiness is a new set of strategies. Yes, we, we need do. a more relevant and complete understanding of what's involved. I put two Two exclamation points. Yes, you did. In a world where rejection, failure, self-doubt, hypocrisy, loss, boredom, and annoying and obnoxious people are inevitable, we, the authors, reject the notion that positivity is the only place to search for answers. We reject the belief that being healthy is marked by a life with as little pain as possible. In fact, it's only when we are unwilling to take on the inevitable pain in life, whether it's the death of a parent, divorce, or not getting that big promotion at work, that pain turns into something we experience as suffering. 
Suffering arises when we turn our backs on an escalation in emotional, physical, or social discomfort. Rather than working to promote more happiness, we endorse the ability to access the full range of psychological states, both the positive and the negative, to respond effectively to what life offers. In a word, wholeness. Hmm. To respond effectively. Yeah. That is really ringing very, very true. Yeah. So they're saying you experience suffering when you turn your back on these feelings. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, when Greg Beckett was on mm-hmm. our motivational hypnotist, um, he said that thing that made our jaws drop, which was people don't change until they're in pain. That's right. Right? If you're happy, you're not necessarily growing or no. trying new things or whatever. So you're you're in stasis. So, like, it's so right. powerful. And also, you know, the whole, like, the body knows best why have we as a society, I wonder, and I'm curious if they address this in the book, been trying to turn away from these negative feelings? Like if this if this is something mm-hmm. that our body experiences constantly so or on a regular thing, why are we going like, oh, no, our body knows it wants to be happy, but like ignoring this entire other side of it? That's so interesting. I don't think they address that, but um, it makes me think about Eastern medicine versus Western medicine, right? Like yeah. Western medicine is very curative versus like preventative and versus like being Mm -hmm. in tune with the body versus working against you know yeah it's like we're always trying to fix something as opposed to being like no our bodies are working literally exactly as they've meant to evolve over the last however many years because you have a stress that there's a stressor coming yeah and thank god we have those systems too right yeah interesting so this there's also this idea of sustainable happiness like, it's a switch that's turned on and stays permanent. No, and everybody keeps it. Like, happiness, you achieve it for what? All of five minutes? If that. Two days? The authors say, in reality, we switch between positive and negative states yeah. constantly. Yeah. And and this next quote blew my mind. Paradoxically, we are increasingly stressed because we put so much effort and emphasis on comfort. Uh. So we are increasingly stressed because we put so much emphasis on comfort. This blew my mind. So they liken it to antibacterial soaps. You use it so long, and then you have no immunity to bacteria. Mm. So given so many amenities today, we've developed a tendency to avoid discomfort. Oh, yeah, we have. We can't go a minute without looking at our cell phone. We mm. have to have 500 channels on our television. Yeah. They, my favorite is they're like, they're is technology developed for astronauts to sleep more effectively, but we have to have that mattress on Earth so it conforms to every nook and cranny on our body for a night's sleep. And then it was too hot, so we had to have it cooler. Yeah, we had to have a topper, a gel topper. Yeah, and then yeah. and then when you sleep not in your bed, it's not comfortable and you don't get rest. Right, as opposed to just being like, life is what it is and that's fine because that's part of it. They mentioned that like in the 1950s, only 20% of people were like, my car has to have air conditioning. Oh, my God. But I, I'm also like, well, people didn't commute like they do today. And the world wasn't as hot. Yeah. But, I mean, right? even people who lived in, like, warmer climates weren't yeah. like, I have to have AC or my house has to have AC. Yeah. And now we're like, it's hot. Did you ever ride the Carousel of Progress at Disney? You know, that is Linda Linky's favorite ride. You know, that's Misty Stinnett's <gasps> favorite ride. Hey, it's Linda Linky. Great, big, beautiful, beautiful tomorrow. tomorrow. 
shining at the end of every day. <laughs> um, but it's kind of like they didn't have any refrigeration, and then they have like you like your it moves to the next block of scenery, and suddenly mm-hmm. they've got like a cooler with an ice cube in it, and ice has been invented. Yeah, I think so. It really struck home to me that the more comforts we give ourselves, yeah. the more anxiety we have. When we don't have those comforts readily available. Not even when we don't have them available. Just the mere fact that we have made our life so comfortable, Mm -hmm. we now have more anxiety. So it isn't that we have to have them available. It's simply that we have more comfort. We naturally have more anxiety. I wonder why. We've lessened our tolerance for discomfort. So it's almost like tolerating discomfort and that resilience is a muscle. And when we don't get to use it, then our anxiety is like, why are we not getting to use this? That's exactly right. It made me think of Pima Children, who was like, sometimes it's hot. And I was also thinking as a caveat. Who was like, sometimes it's hot. Sometimes That's it's it. hot. That's the end of the story. <laughs> but do you remember? And you were like, what? 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 And I think she's talking about that whole thing in terms of meditation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're hot and it's, you're meditating and it's hot, you want to change it. But the yeah. point is, in order to use what Build we learn resilience. in meditation uh-huh. out in the world— Sometimes it's hot. You just sit with and it. And you just sit with it because it's not going to stop. Mm. Right? Yeah. We don't have control over that. And the impermanence of that sucks. Yeah. Right? So I, I, it's, it just struck such a nerve with me. Yeah. Because the feeling you do have when you leave your house without your cell phone is immediate, like, terror for a second. And then you realize, yeah. it's actually okay if I don't have a cell phone for a day. I can survive. Oh, yeah. And I remember what it used to be like to not have them. And then yeah. I, I actually recently did that. I, I went dancing and I left my cell phone yeah. on purpose to be in Last the moment. Last night, I only took a lip balm and my cell phone to a party. I didn't even take a key and I left my front door open. Whoa! I mean, not open, but unlocked. Whoa. On Listen. purpose? Yeah, because I didn't want to take a purse. I didn't want to take it. It was hot. You could take like the one house key off the keychain just to like lock your home is the thing. But but like you know where I live. Somebody so would have great. to be very specific to know what was yeah, happening. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so yeah. I just was like, we have so many. So this is something that I it struck me and I was like, this is 100% true. Yeah. Our amenities and our level of comfort is at the same time increasing our anxiety. So should we get rid of everything in the big screen TV and the cell phone and sleep on the floor with no blanket? Well, they don't really say that. Oh, great. Um, So each chapter has studies and science to back up their claims, but I'm going to whisk through them to save time. Great. And I feel like, tell me if I'm wrong, this is probably going to be a two-parter. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Great. Because this is already— And I will spend more time in the first two or three chapters and then the the For the setup and the philosophy. Great. So, um, but just so you know, there is so much packed into each chapter. There's lots of points like to verify, and they give studies to back stuff up. And Great. if this interests you, if you're into STEM, um, you're good. Great. Um, uh, but I'm going to keep going. Okay. So, imposter syndrome, they mm-hmm. talk about it. They say, well, imposter syndrome is bad. Get rid of imposter syndrome. Okay. Well, that's what the world says. Oh, yeah. What? How? Tell me. I feel like such an an imposter in this moment. They say doubt in moderation performs a healthy function. Okay. It prompts us to take stock of our skills and work to improve in areas that might be deficient. Okay. So 
In moderation. Yes, right? So there is something with like you are having such anxiety that you can't speak in a meeting and you're shutting down. But I think we all have a little bit of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And doubt does perform a good function. Right. It makes you take stock of your skills. Yeah. Do I need to get better at this? Yeah. But I guess imposter syndrome gets in your way when you're like, I'm not taking that job because I'm not qualified, even though you may be wildly qualified. Well, I think what they're saying is recognize the emotion. Yeah, and the value in that. And check the value in that yeah. versus because the the feeling you're having right there is right. doubt and fear. Right. And those serve a purpose. Right. Because you could gut check and say, do I have those qualifications? Yeah. Right? Versus yeah. just kind of yeah. saying, get rid of imposter syndrome and just... You can do it. You can do it. Or, now, listen, I am the first person to say carry yourself with the confidence of a, of a mediocre white man, mm-hmm. right? I have a tote bag you gave me that says that. I know. But the other part of it is like I, I like I, what they're saying is this smiling fascism, mm-hmm. right? Is that like don't ever have imposter syndrome. Don't, right? Yeah. So I have imposter syndrome and then I feel guilty and shameful for having imposter syndrome. Yeah, or like as when opposed you look to going on Instagram. like, oh man, my mind is really reassessing right now, and isn't that great? Mm-hmm. I can, oh, oh, my mind is telling me I want to evaluate my skill set. Yeah, or like I probably could get better at this. We mm-hmm. can all get better at stuff. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think in moderate, they're they're saying in moderation. So yeah. if you are crippled with doubt and unable to speak or participate in a meeting, that's different. Mm-hmm. But this idea of imposter syndrome is is bad and you should never succumb to it. I don't think I think they're saying that's not that's not helpful to you. Mm-hmm. That's not a state of wholeness. Mm-hmm. Um, they say quitting is bad. I don't know. They talk about this guy. He trained like crazy to climb Everest. He bicycled more than eight thousand miles to Kathmandu, but he turned around three hundred feet shy of the top <gasps> because there were late afternoon conditions that were questionable. Those that stayed died in the 1996 Everest disaster. Oh, my God. Whole people have the ability to approach goals flexibly by continuing to invest when progress occurs at an acceptable pace and by swapping old goals out for new ones when failure is almost certain. Like living. Yes. Oh, my God. So I've, I just went after I read that, I've been seeing on my Instagram all these like motivations because for on Go Help Yourself, we follow a lot of accounts and we are we follow a lot of, like yeah. the self-help hashtag. We're at Go Help Yourself podcast on Instagram. That's right. And a lot of them are like you have what there's no excuse to quit. There's no excuse to quit. Keep going. Keep if it's, going. It's not the end until. And I just think. Here's a there there are great times to quit. Yeah. Like when there's unfavorable conditions on the top of the world's tallest mountain. And the people who had the mindset of there's no excuse to quit died. Oh my god. They could not reevaluate their goals in the face of new information wow. that didn't meet their goal. I mean, this man bicycled across Europe to Kathmandu. Yeah. Eight thousand yeah. miles. That yeah. would be tough. Very tough. So that was interesting. They say emotional agility, the trick when wholeness is concerned, is not to avoid negative emotions, but to take the negative out of them and just see them as emotions. Just as emotions, Mm -hmm. which is what you love. So they're already Mm -hmm. going back on what they said in the intro. So chapter two, the rise of the comfortable class. Mm -hmm. They said, uh, do a Google image search for discomfort. And the images show furrowed brows, people having pain, Yeah, yeah, touching their foreheads. Do a Google image search for comfort and you see soft down comforters. You see soft beds, uh-huh. plush chairs, uh-huh. and luxury jets. The message is that discomfort is internal and comfort is to be found externally around us. Oh my God. 
This, what? This is a largely Western phenomenon. So they have a linear problem that they present. One, we use material comforts and convenience items. Two, this leads to an urge to use external goods to be at ease. Yes. Three, which leads to lower psychological immunity to circumstances that are less comfortable and more convenient. Oh, my God. So the tie between industrialization, modernization, and comfort and convenience, there is a tie there. Okay. But... A faster pace of life is also related with lower rates of achievement and money saving. So the more convenient everything is, the less likely everyone is able to engage in self-control. I can save less because everything is more convenient. Okay. So the next time that I am feeling uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and I get an urge to see if there's a nice pair of shoes on sale, Mm -hmm. if I were to just put down my phone or my laptop or whatever I'm browsing on mm-hmm. just sit there and feel those feelings mm-hmm. i'm actually doing my brain and body a huge favor and your bank account and my bank account mm-hmm. because in the environment <laughs> um because i am letting myself practice emotional resilience by just being there with that feeling and not seeking extra comfort, comfort way out of it that's right wow wow mm-hmm. i mean which i think we kind of know but we live in a consumerist capitalist well we we know but i've i don't know that anyone has framed it as like oh this is exercise for your resilience muscles yes you know what i mean like we sort of know abstractly like oh it's good to let yourself feel your feelings because they'll get blocked well i mean i think if like you're an addict right if you're an addict if you're a shopping addict or if you're like an alcoholic Mm -hmm. any 12-step program will say like when you get an urge or when you have an emotional reaction, you're going to want to drink. You're going to want to, you know, and what you need to do is call someone, talk about the trigger, like what happened. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm totally boiling this down to, you know, but I, I think that's it. Right. But you're right. I I think outside of actively working against like a, 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 with a therapist for a trigger or in a 12 step, we don't really talk about it like that. Yeah, we don't, we don't. So, They talk about how the 1990s was the comfort era. This was the first time we heard the phrase comfort food. Oh, shit. Really? It was a dramatic rise of the comfortable class. The economic climate began to smooth out. We It was uh, the first death with dignity laws. Oh. Um, we, the term comfort zone appeared. The Tempur-Pedic mattresses for civilians and not just astronauts, right? So this is when the comfort started really increasing. But as comfort increased, anxiety increased. 1996 was the first time in history that students at college health clinics began complaining of anxiety more frequently than they sought help for relationship problems or depression. That's really interesting. And uh, But is there a study for this? Because I feel like correlation does not necessarily mean causation. 100%. 100%. I think what they're just saying is this is when things started to shift. Right. Because we see a market shift in the numbers a, of all of this. We do. And because the economy smoothed out. So in the 70s, there was that huge recession. The 80s was recovering. 90s, it stabled out. Um, we saw these new words appear in mm. the in the um, zeitgeist, right? Oh. Comfort, comfort. And then for the first time, anxiety appears on college campuses more than depression. I'm going to throw... In Amusing, from the first book we ever covered, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, by Mark Manson. And he says that true happiness is about having problems to solve. Mm, Right? So true happiness. So I wonder. Yeah, that that matches. Yeah. And I I wonder if it's like, oh, we all were yearning for this comfortable life and then it became so accessible. I wonder if that has anything to do with like 
oh, man, those were the main problems we were solving, and now all of that's answered, and now we don't have any Interesting. bigger problems to solve. Interesting. I'm curious. This is all just – this is not backed up by anything but my brain. Well, your brain is beautiful Thank and you. amazing. Um, so there's this uh, this concept of experience, experiential avoidance. Mm-hmm. The attempts to bury unwanted thoughts or feelings, to hide from them so actively that we have little energy left over for being present as life unfolds. Mm-hmm. I call this numbing out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So – just as an example of what was happening, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, oh. which is how how people classify and right. um, determine. Okay. So in nineteen nine, excuse me, in nineteen eighty, the DSM was four hundred ninety four pages and had two hundred sixty five mental illnesses. Okay, in just fourteen years. In 1994, the DSM was 886 pages and had added 32 mental illnesses. Whoa. Whoa. So this is what they're talking about, how like the It skyrocketed. Yes. Yeah. Um, so cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s was rebranded in 1990 as learned optimism by Dr. Martin Seligman. He was the founder of positive psychology. Okay. Teaches people how to reduce the emotional pain that sabotages happiness. The authors say this is an extension of our addiction to physical comfort. Holy shit. And here's a little tolly here. ACT therapy, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy. When you recognize the observer as being separate from the pain, mm-hmm. you can become better at tolerating the pain. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. very Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. So I just want to check in and say I think maybe now is a good time to pause and we can pick up the rest, the of, rest the of the chapters. Yeah. Okay. So this foundation is all, if we were to recap it, is... There are no negative emotions. Right. Every single emotion has something to teach us. It's and useful. Even the ones that we have been taught are bad right. or negative, right. like discomfort, unhappiness, depression even. You know, well, depression is a state, not an emotion, I right. guess. Right. right. Or anger. They're all really useful. And that these authors posit that being able to flex between and use them between, quote, positive and, quote, negative emotions and states is what leads to this feeling of wholeness. And it's not only the natural human condition to do that, Mm -hmm. but it actually is whole. It's wholeness. And people who are able to achieve wholeness have a better sense of happiness and are better at resolving marital conflict, negotiating a raise, (laughs) teaching their kids. kids. Yeah. 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 So so it isn't just be happy. Great. And so what we will get into, I'm hoping, mm-hmm. in the second part of this episode is how to yes. lean into this. We're going to talk about why ne- negative emotions are um, beneficial and can be highly motivational, why positive emotions can lead to your downfall. Oh. And then we're going to talk a little bit about... Um, beyond this obsession with mindfulness. Great. And then um, kind of wrap it up. Amazing. Okay, everybody. That's stay, next week. Stay with us. Yeah. I, I hope this was already useful, and I hope I can already tell that I'm going to have a little bit more room for self-compassion because I do, you know, this coming week as we're sitting with this, I feel like, I, I don't know about anyone else listening, but I always need permission. I need permission to feel more yeah. self-compassion or a scientific reason, right? <laughs> it's hard to be compassionate yes, to yourself. It's, it's see um, it's stamp. Do you know what I mean? You're with me. Okay, everybody, stay with us with that. We'll see you next week. Life, Life is abundant. abundant.
Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias. Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast. Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.